this time to go back to Children's Church. We've been an opportunity to learn on their level there while we turn to Galatians chapter 4. The story goes there's a blind guy sitting at a coffee shop, nudges the person next to him and says, hey, you want to hear a blonde joke? And the place immediately becomes completely quiet, kind of like it has in here. Uh, in a husky voice, the woman next to him says, before you, before you tell that joke, you should know something. I'm six feet tall, 200 pounds, and a black belt in karate. What's more, the man sitting next to me is blonde, and he's a weightlifter. She says, the woman to your right is a blonde, and, he's, and she is a pro wrestler. You think about it, mister. You still want to tell that blonde joke? He pauses for a minute, and the blind guy finally says, I guess not. Not if I have to explain it three times. <clears throat> I say that because today is one of those messages. I hope we don't have to explain it three times. It's a difficult passage sort of to take on, but I want to try it this morning. Galatians chapter 4, let's go to verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise, <clears throat> which things are an allegory. For these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren, that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. I want to preach today for a few minutes here on who is your mother. Who is your mother? Father, I pray you to help us now as we tackle this passage. I pray you to help us to learn something to be a help to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Many commentators agree this is one of the hardest passages in the book of Galatians. In fact, if you are in the habit of reading commentaries, if you have prepare Sunday school lessons or preach once in a while, whatever the case might be, you'll know uh, it, it's one of the kind of a jokes of a pastor that if you really come across a difficult passage and you go to a lot of commentaries, skip right over that part. I mean, it's like if you've got difficulty with it, they all do too, and they just kind of skip over it. And there's a temptation to skip over this part and go right to Galatians chapter 5 and get to the good stuff about the fruit of the Spirit found in 22 through 23, and, and that's things we can all learn. But today, I'd like to tackle this passage. There's a certain joy I guess I get sometimes in taking on a difficult passage that at first makes you say, huh, when you read it, and then when you study it out a little bit and unlock some of its uh, meanings and teachings, it can really be a help to us. Understand, first of all, Paul's audience is very Jewish, or his, his, that's why his argument here is very Jewish as well. <coughs> his first century readers would have no problems following him. But we read this passage and it kind of raises more questions than it gives answers. Most of us know about Abraham and Sarah, and we know something about Hagar and Ishmael. 
But what are we to make of a verse like verse 25? For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. I've never met anybody who makes Galatians 4.25 their life verse. <laughs> that just doesn't seem to speak to them. But it's in the Bible, and so we're going to look at it today, and I believe it gives us a message that we want to hear. By the way, <clears throat> can I say this? If it's in the Bible, it's relevant. Don't ever let anybody tell you the Bible is not relevant. Amen? The Bible as is, is the most relevant book we can read. In fact, sometimes you read Old Testament uh, stories and read Old Testament passages and it's almost like opening up your newspaper. Amen? Except it's true. There's a difference there. But Anyway, they wanted here <clears throat> a hybrid religion. Uh, the key to the whole passage is verse 21. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? The passage is aimed here at Judaizers who had infiltrated the church and a Judaizer was one who taught that you, you, to be saved you also had to observe Jewish practices. And so he's addressing a people who want a sort of hybrid religion, part Jewish and part Christian. They want to believe in Jesus plus. Anytime you have anybody who wants to believe in Jesus plus, there's a problem. But they wanted to live under the law also as a means of winning God's favor. And Paul's point he's making here is, have you considered the implications of what you're trying to do? Paul is arguing with people who want to take Jesus with them back to an Old Testament way of life and live the way the law had told them to live. And so we understand as he's laying it out in this passage, you can't do that. You can't have the law as a way of life and have Jesus as a way of life, both. You can't have them both. Let me make clear today, salvation and Christianity is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There is nothing added to it. Now let's look at an Old Testament story here that Paul brings up. He says in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, and he of the free woman was by promise. The story behind this is found in the book of Genesis. Abraham was a prosperous businessman. He lived in the land of Ur. When God came to him, says, pack up your wife, pack up your belongings, and get. And he says, get out of your country and go to a land that I'll tell thee of. And he left, not knowing where he was going, where he would end up. <clears throat> but God also promised him along with that, that his descendants would become a great nation, more than the stars in the sky and the, uh, the uh, sand and the seashore. And this was all well and good, except Abraham was 75, Sarah was 65, and they had no children. But of course, uh, in the course of time, they arrived in Canaan, and the land that God had promised them. Ten years had passed, and still no son had been born to them. Her biological clock was ticking, and Sarah suggests that Abraham marry Hagar, which was her bond, her Egyptian handmaid. So Abraham agreed, and before long, Hagar became pregnant, had a son named Ishmael. Now, Sarah's motives on one level, I believe, were sincere. Uh, she believed God uh, to an extent, but she came to that, uh, that human reasoning, uh, which was reasonable, that at age 75 plus, she was too old to have a baby. Now, she and Abraham decided to take matters in their own hands and help God out. May I remind you, friend, God does not need our help to accomplish His purposes. When He says something is going to be, 
That something is going to be. It does not matter if we see it as an impossibility. So whenever we try to be a help to God, to move Him along, rather than waiting on Him and His will, we're always going to get ourselves into trouble, make things worse, not better. That's exactly what happened. Genesis 16 records for us the animosity that arose between Sarah and Hagar. This is no surprise. You have two women sharing one man. That's always going to be a recipe for trouble. It's hard enough for one woman to deal with one man. Amen? I read about a speaker at a woman's conference who was speaking on marriage. And she, uh, in the course of her teaching these ladies, said, how many of you really want to mother your husbands? And only one woman in the back row raised her hands. And it surprised the speaker because a woman wants to mother their husband. And so she says, really? She says, you want to mother your husband? And she says, oh, you said mother. I thought you said smother. Uh, two women are never going to work out all right. All right? So young Ishmael grows up in a very tense home situation, understandably. Fourteen years pass. Abraham is now 99 years old and Sarah is 89. There's no way they'll ever have a child together. She's too old and he is too old. But then God announces again, Sarah's going to conceive and bear a son. God opened Sarah's womb. Twelve months later, Isaac was born. Uh, Ishmael, not twelve months after she got pregnant, you understand. Twelve months after the promise, just to make sure. There wasn't another miracle that took place here. Ishmael was born the ordinary way. Isaac was born as a result of God's promise. Ishmael was born a slave because his mother was a slave. Isaac was born free because his mother was free. Now, that much of the biblical story is familiar to us. But Paul uses this example because the Jews revered Abraham as their spiritual father. As far as they're concerned, if you could find Father Abraham in your family tree, you were fine with God. You were in good position with him. You were going to be one of his children. <clears throat> they, it was a matter of lineage to them. And Paul is saying here, not so. God's family is made up of those people who have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. It is a matter of faith, not a matter of family tree. And this is a crucial point for us to recognize even today. Many people today think being right with God is having the right spiritual pedigree. Uh, they'll say things like, I'm Catholic, so I must be all right. I don't know how many doors I've knocked on or people I've spoke to, and uh, I try, start to witness to them, and they say, oh, 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 I'm Catholic. Like, that's just supposed to shut the door to everything. I'm good because I'm Catholic. Or they might say something like, I was baptized as a baby, and so I'm on my way to heaven. My dad was a Baptist preacher, so I must be okay with God. Others think because they're children of missionaries or uh, pastors are in good standing, but none of this is true. You don't go to heaven because of who your parents are or who your mom or dad was. That may help you on earth, but as far as concern, eternity is concerned, it's not worth a plug nickel. Uh, it is only a personal relationship you have with Jesus Christ. Now the problem in Galatia here that Paul was addressing is that the Judaizers taught you had to act like a Jew or observe Jewish custom in order to be saved. That meant you had to be circumcised. That meant you had to keep the trappings of the law. That meant you had to have the right pedigree. And the Judaizers were basically asking the question, who's your father? If your father is Abraham, you're in good shape. And Paul was 
defining the question down a little bit, who's your mother? Because he uses two mothers. The right father, but there's two mothers we're looking at here. Hagar and Sarah. And they make a big difference which spirit we are after. Uh, we see in there, this brings us back to their story. And it was a dysfunctional soap opera. Uh, the tricky part is that both times Abraham and Sarah believed God. When he took Hagar as his wife, they believed that God had what God had said, but also they thought God needed help. The second time he and Sarah believed God, and they had Isaac as a result. The difference is, that the same choice is in front of you today. Will you believe God and God alone, according to his promise, or you will believe God partway and think you have to help him get over the top? That's the question. Hagar or Sarah? Let's put the facts in simple terms here. We have two sons. We have one son born the ordinary way, one son born according to God's promise. We have one son born by God's intervention. One was a, uh, born by spiritual compromise. One was born according to God's promise. Ishmael was born according to works, trying to solve the problem by human effort. Uh, Isaac was born because Abraham and Sarah simply believed God's promise. Now the lesson here is clear, and I don't want you to miss this. Self-effort and faith in God cannot coexist. We're either going to believe God, or we're going to try to do it on our own. This is the point Abraham, or, or Paul's trying to make in this passage. You cannot, have, uh, you cannot have Hagar and Sarah both as your mother. Which mother do you have? Now what does this mean for us? Well, all of this is an allegory, or... Now, the story's real, the people are real, don't get me wrong, but Paul uses them for an allegory. He says in verse 24, which things are an allegory. The easiest way to sort this out is where Paul starts, with two women and two sons. He sees a big difference in these two, Sarah and Hagar. Sarah represents grace, Hagar represents the law. Sarah stands for trusting God alone, Hagar stands for trusting God a little bit, but also adding my own efforts into it. In salvation, we look at this by living a good life so I can go to heaven or having enough good works to offset my bad. And we see in salvation, God has no part in that. It's either grace or it's works. It's not works and grace. It's either works or it's grace. And the Bible makes that very clear. And so these two sons uh, represent the way of faith, Isaac, or the way of works, Ishmael. Paul is saying that Sarah is in, line, in the line of faith and Hagar is in the line of works. Here is where we bring it home to where we are. All humanity is part of one of these two lines. You're going to be in the line of Hagar or you're going to be in the line of Sarah. You're going to be in the line of doing it on your own or trusting Christ for salvation 100%. There is no third line that we can choose. Those who, like Hagar, trust religion, good works, self-effort, in order to earn a place in heaven, can be represented by boiling down all the religions in the world. Now, I've had people tell me as, as a pastor, how do you know which way is right? There's so many religions to choose from. Really, there isn't. There's really only two. Either you do it yourself, or you trust in God. That's your only two choices. Whether it's Islam... Uh, whether it's getting baptized as a baby, whether it's doing sacraments to get go to heaven, all they are either self-effort or trusting in God. Those are really the only two choices. And that's 
Hagar, works, or Sarah, faith. That's the two lines represented here. Salvation is supremely simple. Praise God. I read about an instant cake mix that several years ago was a big flop. This company uh, put out instructions. All you had to do is add water, and you could bake this cake from this mix. It was a failure. People didn't buy it. And they didn't understand why until they researched it a little bit, and they found out that apparently people thought it was too easy. I mean, if a man can do it, it's too easy, amen? And so uh, the company altered the formula. They changed the directions that now it called for water and an egg. And uh, the idea worked and sales jumped dramatically. Now that is the way some people look at salvation. It, to them it sounds too simple, too easy to be true. Oh, but listen, preacher, I have to do something to earn my way there. They don't accept, even though the Bible says in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace are you saved. Through faith, and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Let me ask you, friend, what do you have to do to earn a gift? You tell your kids this. How many, we've, we've, those of us who've had kids, how many times we said, you, if you're bad, you're not going to get a Christmas gift. That's hogwash and you know it. They're going to get a Christmas gift. They know you're lying, you know you're lying, because gifts aren't based on merit, are they? Or they're not gifts. It's not based on anything they earn. And so he said it is a gift of God. Now, we still feel there's something we must do, though. Add to God's recipe for salvation. Surely you have to perform some good works. Surely you have to live a certain way. But the Bible is crystal clear on how we are saved, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, Titus 3.5. Unlike, listen, friend, unlike the cake mix company. God has not altered his formula for salvation. It still is faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. We have to make sure we understand that uh, the gospel must be free of works. Now, the reference here to Mount Sinai points back to the giving of the law to Moses. Now, since nobody can be saved by the law, these people are trapped by demands they never can meet. That puts them into bondage. That's where the idea of bondage comes in when you talk about the law. If you are trying to keep the law of God, keep the commandments, keep everything God says, in order to earn your way to heaven, that puts you into bondage because you can't ever keep them. You ever tried to keep the Ten Commandments? Just the Ten. There's 360 some in the Bible, but there's just the Ten. Have you ever tried to keep the Ten Commandments? I heard of one woman, she gets, uh, she, she's praying, Lord, so far today I haven't broken any commandments. I haven't yelled at anyone. I haven't gotten angry. I haven't been jealous of anyone. Uh, I, have, I haven't used your name in vain. I haven't broken any of the commandments today. But dear Lord, in a few minutes, I'm about to get out of bed. And I need your help for the rest of the day. Amen? That's the hope we have of keeping the Ten Commandments. Now, the picture is then this slave woman, Hagar, versus the free woman, Sarah. Because remember, again... Law living is bondage. You're in a position of trying to keep a law you cannot keep, and that puts you in bondage. They, they, the uh, slave woman, Hagar, stands for those enslaved by the tyranny of the law, trying to keep it for a means of salvation. Now let me just talk about the law for a second, because you might hear this and say, well then why, if it's not keeping the law that takes us to heaven, why did God give the law? 
Well, there's several reasons he did. Primarily, we could say that he gave the law as a protection against the most destructive force in your life. That is sin. Sin is the most destructive form of anything that you can have in your life. Let me give you an example. Uh, commandment number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Can you see how that might help you in your life, in your marriage, protect you against a lot of misery? So the law of God, first of all, protects you from earthly consequences of sin. However, the law of God cannot protect you from the penalty of sin because we can't keep it. The Bible says that if we've broken one, we've broken them all. Great illustration we can use is a mirror. When you get up in the morning, some of you spend a lot of time in front of the mirror. Some of you need to, never mind. But uh, we spend all this time in front of the mirror, and a mirror is helpful because it tells you what is wrong. Right? You follow on that? One lady, I read this, I, I couldn't help but share this with you. I thought this was so funny. One lady wrote this, a very weird thing has happened. A strange old lady has moved into my house. I have no idea where she came from or how she got in. I certainly did not invite her. All I know is that one day she wasn't there and the next day she was. She's a clever old lady. Keeps out of sight for most part, but whenever I pass a mirror, I catch a glimpse of her. When I look into the mirror to check my appearance, there she is hogging the whole thing, completely obliterating my beautiful face. This is very rude. I've tried screaming at her, but she just screams back. The truth is, the mirror tells the truth. Amen? It doesn't, it doesn't, that's why I hate these social media filters. They're not real, okay? You don't look like that. You, you don't, you're trying to fake it anyway. But uh, mirrors tell the truth, don't they? They don't have a filter on them. Not, not a mirror I've ever seen anyway. They tell the truth as it is. Now imagine along with me that I look into the mirror and I see my hair is askew, messed up, out of place. And so I reach up and take the mirror off the wall and fix my hair with it, right? No, the mirror doesn't fix the problem. The mirror shows you the problem. Now the Bible tells us in James 1.23 that the law of God is for us a mirror. And it shows us the problem. Paul put it this way in Romans chapter 7, verse 7. He said, what then shall we say then is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but for the law. He says, I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. That makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, ignorance is no excuse for the law, but the law is given for us to know what wrong is. And so, uh, that is what Paul tells us here. In other words, the law revealed to him what sin was. In Galatians 3.24, the Bible tells us that wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So what the law does is it shows you your need by virtue of the fact that you can't keep the whole law. And it shows you, hey, I'm a sinner. I can't keep the law. I, there's no way I can keep it all. No matter how hard I try, I still continue to fail. It shows us who we are. So it, the sad thing is, instead of letting the law bring people to the right conclusion, it often makes many people get mad at the law, the Word of God, the Bible. This is what bewilders me as a preacher or a person or a Christian. Why would you get mad at the Bible? It's, imagine with me that a, 
young couple wakes up in the morning after a good night's sleep. The husband looks in the mirror and his face, hair is disheveled. His, uh, he has one of those sleep wrinkles going all the way down the side of his face. And he gets really angry, picks up his wife's hairbrush and just starts beating on the mirror. She says, what in the world are you doing? He says, I don't like the reflection I got. That, that's ridiculous. You know that. that. To judge a mirror because of what it reveals. It is no more ridiculous than people who attack the mirror of the Word of God because they don't like the reflection on their character that they see. But we see it all the time. What do people do? They attack the Bible instead of changing their behavior. Now, by contrast to Hagar representing the law, Sarah stands for the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. The salvation that he offers is free to anyone who will take it and accept it by faith. This salvation offers us true and lasting freedom. Do you understand where the freedom comes from? Not being under the bondage of the law that you can't keep. Now we have freedom. That does not mean, whoo, I'm free. I don't have to obey any of the law anymore. No, no. You know that as a Christian that we still obey the law, but we do it now because of our love for God and we understand that sin, how much harm it can bring to us. And so in obeying the law... Therefore, I don't bring all these awful consequences on my life. There's freedom. Picture Abraham as the father of two vast streams of humanity. You have Abraham, and then from there go two streams of humanity. The line of works and self-effort looks like this. Abraham, Hagar, Ishmael, Mount Sinai, the law, bondage, death. The line of faith is Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Mount Zion, the gospel, faith in Christ, salvation, heaven. Notice that Abraham stands at the head of both lines. That's why it's not enough to be Abraham's son. That's why Paul brings out in this passage, I'm not asking you who your dad is. I'm asking who's your mother. Is it going to be Hagar? Or is it going to be Sarah? Now, understand we're not talking literal lineage here. We're talking about our attitude towards spiritual things. Who's your mother? Now, finally, we look at the contemporary application here. Look at verse 28. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. In these verses here, Paul draws four contemporary applications. We're the children of promise, not of works. We are after the spirit of Isaac, not after Ishmael. We have believed God's promises by faith. On that basis alone, we are on our way to heaven. We are children of God. Number two, we should expect persecution from those who practice the religion of works. Make no mistake, we are the enemy of those who follow after Ishmael, who become, who, who are about earning their own way to heaven. Uh, this, is, this is sometimes, thankful in America, it's a little bit uh, subdued, but in other countries, especially in places where Islam has taken over, it, you could die for it if you don't believe like they believe. And... Uh, we learn in Genesis 21 that Ishmael mocked young Isaac to try to humiliate him. Religious people do the same today. John Stott points out that our chief opposition always, almost always comes from religion, not pagans. No one hates God's grace like the man trying to save himself. Uh, and it's a sad thing because that offers what he really wants. It's a sad, sad thing to see. Religionists hate true Christians because they have what they want. It was religious Jews that hated Jesus the most, not the worldly Romans. 
And Paul's greatest enemies were not the uh, philosophers at Athens, they were the religious leaders. The descendants of Hagar are always threatened by the descendants of Sarah. Because Sarah's children live by faith, Hagar's by works. And faith always threatens those who think they can do something to earn their salvation. Don't miss this. This is such an important thing for us to realize. I'll give you an example. About four years ago, two of my first cousins, brother and sister, left the Amish religion. They were in their late teens. And uh, both left at the same time, and they, uh, they went different directions. My, the, the sister, my cousin, uh, went into what we would call the world. Started drinking, partying, shacking up with different men and people and friends and just uh, drugs. Went, the whole, went all the way, whole hog into sin. My cousin, his name was, his name's Jerry, uh, he came to my parents for some direction and help. He uh, moved in with them for a short while. He started going to church. He got saved. He got a job. He earned and became respectful. He bought himself a truck and my dad helped him get set up in some different things and helped set him on the right path. They were the recipients of two letters from their family. The girl, uh, the sister, got a letter from mom and dad. You are welcome at home anytime. We love you. We want you back. They gave the kind of letter you might expect. One of us might give a person that has went off into sin. It said, we're here. You don't even have to dress Amish to come home, which is a big deal. If you've left and you, have to, you want to go back and visit, often they want you to dress like they dress. You don't have to. We just want you home. You come home anytime. We love you. All that kind of stuff you can imagine in a letter. My cousin Jerry got a letter as well. His letter went along something like, you are dead to us. You are no longer our son. Uh, we want nothing to do with you. We don't want you to visit. We don't want you to write letters. You don't want, if you send us a letter, we won't open it along those lines. I remember I heard that, and I was thinking, why the different response? But here's a truth that we find right here in this passage. Sin does not threaten religion. Truth threatens religion. It did not, well, of course it bothered them, but it wasn't the end of the world that their child was in sin. That doesn't threaten our religion. Boy, it was the end of the line when a person got saved, baptized, starts following the Lord Jesus Christ because religion cannot abide grace. It can abide sin, but it cannot abide grace. Isn't that something? Yet that's what we see all throughout the world today. Even when religious people go to church, they go to church out of compulsion, not out of love. That's why so many religious people are lost. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees that when you begin a proselyte, you make them a twofold child of hell. That's a strong statement. What he's saying is you take somebody who's lost and they're in the depravity of sin and they know that they've they're, they got no place to go but up because they're all the way at the bottom. They know they need Christ. They know they need to be saved. They know that they're in bad shape. But you give somebody religion and now they're two steps from heaven. They're, they've got to first get lost before they get saved, so to speak. Now, we know they're lost already, but you know what I mean. They've got to understand it and realize it. It's a terrible thing, this religion. Religion has sent more people to hell than sin. And so we understand that. They're enslaved by the law. Demands that they keep working, trying, and doing to please God. The end result is always failure. Always inner bondage, frustration. Ultimately, it is spiritual death. Our greatest opposition 
is for those who claim to practice religion, but they do it in the name of tolerance. You can believe whatever you want. Or they do it in the name of diversity. You can believe whatever you want as long as you're sincere. Osteen holds to something like that. Pluralism. There's many ways to heaven. Pastor Oprah believes something along those lines. They hate those who stand for truth that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. In fact, he said it. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And they crucified him. Religion hates truth. And they'll have, they will not stand for it. Consider abortion and gay rights. These sins could not spread in America without, were it not compromised within mainline denominations. You see that all over. They dislike us because we won't join in that compromise. Paul's point is clear here. Don't be surprised by the persecution of religious people. It started all the way back with Ishmael and it continues to this day. Now, number three, we must not compromise with those who do not accept the truth of God's word. It was Sarah who told Abraham to throw Ishmael and Hagar out. On one face of it, that seems cruel. I've read that story. Maybe you have too, and you think, man, what? And, you know, Hagar, they threw out in the desert, basically. It wasn't her fault. I mean, she was a, the handmaid. I don't think she had much choice in the matter. And they made a mistake, and now she's paying for it. And, and it seems terribly unfair. And on one face of it, it was. But uh, on a deeper level, Sarah knew what she was doing. The promise of God must be preserved at all costs. If Hagar and Ishmael had stayed in the family, there would have been unending strife. Someone had to go. If you let Ishmael live with Isaac, there will be nothing but trouble. And we understand as a church and as a Christian, there can be no compromise on the core doctrines of our faith. We need to stand strong on the Bible as the Word of God. Jesus Christ as the Son of God born of a virgin, and literally resurrected. Salvation by grace through faith, through Jesus Christ only. The sanctity of life, human life. The truth of the book of Genesis. God's design for marriage to be between a man, one man, and one woman. Moral purity in all things, and we could of course go on. But these things are important that we hold on to. There's a church here in Brookings. I'll not see who they are, that's not important. But on their website, right there, big and bold, front page, you look at it, and I'll give you the quote. The church that I'm talking about has no doctrine, end quote. Right here in Brookings. That is abject compromise. We better have doctrine. Oh, you call yourself a church if you don't live through this book. This, everything in this book, these are important things. We can't let these things go. We can't just say that we're not going to believe anything. That's essentially what that's saying. We don't believe anything. We have no doctrine. We must stand for the truth of the Word of God, even if it costs us popularity or personal advancement. I believe with all my heart that our nation's wicked slide into, or, uh, slide into wicked socialism and communism goes back to God's people making compromises. We will stand by while you take prayer and God out of schools. We'll complain but ultimately do nothing while evolution and gay rights is thrust on our children in those same schools. Thank God there's some parents now taking a stand throughout our nation. That's a good thing. Amen. Number, number four. We who are persecuted also inherit all the promises of God. This is the flip side of persecution. 
Though we may be despised and rejected of men, we are accepted by God in heaven. First, or 2 Corinthians 4.8 We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, yet not in despair. He goes on in verse 9, Persecuted but not forsaken, cast down but not destroyed. Here is the paradox of the Christian life. We are hated yet loved. We are poor yet rich. We are abandoned yet never forsaken. We may be counted losers by the world, but we are part of God's family. We live by faith and we're mocked by those who live by self-effort. The followers of Hagar will never understand the followers of Sarah. Ishmael still hates Isaac, even though he envies him, because he has what he wants uh, to be a child of promise. Christians have no reason to envy anybody in the world. We do that all the time, but others may excel in business, have a lot more friends, fame, have a better lot in life, but why should we envy them? Ishmael got the world. Isaac got the Lord. Who do you think got the better deal? I say Isaac, because he lived and died by faith. Those who don't know Jesus as personal Savior, that may be somebody even in here today. That doesn't mean you don't go to church. That doesn't mean you haven't tried to live a good life. It just means you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And may I say, friend, all those other things don't amount to anything without Christ. I mean, I'm glad people live right and do right, but as far as heaven, that won't gain you anything without knowing Jesus Christ on a personal level. You're no better off than the slave mother Hagar. Riches and worldly pleasure is all that those uh, people that are lost get. With it comes a gnawing emptiness that the world cannot satisfy. When they die, things get better. Uh, Things get worse, I'm sorry, not better. Don't envy the wicked. Not for one moment. Our, their happiness is temporary. Our joy is eternal. What's the answer then, preacher? We give them the gospel. We try to win them to Jesus Christ. I have, uh, going back to my personal testimony with the Amish religion and seeing the heartache and the heartbreak that that religion brings on people, even that they're living in there and they're discouraged and they're constantly down and there's no joy because they're trying to earn their way and they know in deep in their hearts, they know that they'll never be good enough. And then to see when they come to Christ. We were here a few weeks ago and we heard the testimony from two of them. But the joy that they have and the great uh, freedom that comes when Jesus Christ sets us free. Oh, what a blessing. Those who know Jesus have something that cannot be seen or measured. We are forgiven. We're redeemed. We're justified. We're accepted. We're given a new name and a new life. We're numbered with the saints. And after we die, we'll go to heaven. What a deal. Amen? The Christian life might be tough here on earth, but the retirement plan is out of this world. Hallelujah. So listen, friend, and I don't mean to be mean, but if you've been, there's things in the news and things even in Brookings and different things happening at our workplaces that can be cause for complaining and for whining and for being uh, discouraged. But can I encourage you to, along with me, let's build a bridge and get over it. Can I tell you today, you're not a child of Dr. Fauci, you're a child of the King, praise God. Let's live like it. This world is not your home, you're just passing through. Let me conclude with a simple but profound question. Who's your mother? Is it Hagar? That's the life of self-effort. Doing everything I can, hoping I'll be good enough. Hoping my good works will outweigh my bad. Hoping that my life will be good enough for God to let me into heaven. That's Hagar. Or is it Sarah? 
knowing I'll never be good enough. The Bible says there is none that doeth good, there's none that seeketh after God. There's none righteous, no, not one. I'll never be good enough. So I trust in him who's paid the price for my sin on the cross of Calvary, that's Sarah. Whose mother? Who's your mother? Who's your mother today? Are you born of the flesh or also born of the spirit? Do you still think there's some way that you can help God out uh, by the things you do? If you think that you can somehow be good enough to measure or merit salvation, you, my friend, are a child of slavery. You're still in chains. You see the Ishmaels of the world trust in themselves. The Isaacs of the world trust in God alone for salvation. Despite all the differences of skin color, culture change, place of birth, language, all those things, in God's eyes, the human race is divided into two groups. Ishmael's, the Isaacs. Which one are you? You're either a slave to your works or you've been set free by God's grace. Make sure, my friend, today before you leave, you know the answer to this question. Who's your mother? Are you a child of Hagar or a child of Sarah? Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. If you're here today, friend, I want you to think carefully and consider the question I'm going to ask today. There's nobody looking around. Nobody going to embarrass you or point you out. I just want to pray for you. You're here today and you say, Preacher, I'm not sure if I died right now. I don't know for sure I'd be in heaven. I might have a 50%, 75%, 80%, 90%, but I'm not 100% whether I'd be in heaven. Friend, don't leave without settling that today. No amount of self-effort will ever get it done faith in Christ will. If that's you today, friend, would you slip up your hand and let me pray for you? I'm just not sure. I'm just not sure. I see that hand. I'll pray for you. Anybody else? Just not sure. What about you, dear Christian? What have you been living for today? Have you been living to try to earn merit with God? Or have you been living out of appreciation of what He's done for you on the cross of Calvary? Let's not live religious. Let's live Christian. Every uh, everybody stand along with me. She begins to play the offers.